Hey, welcome back to Greenish. We're the sustainability podcast that talks about ways that we can leverage our power individually and collectively to help make the world a little more green. In this episode, we'll be speaking with the owner of Goodstead Farm, Sarah Longstreth. Through her CSA program, Sarah is now making local organic produce more accessible than ever. And that's good for the whole community. <laughs> Hello. Welcome to an episode of the Greenish Podcast. I am one of your hosts, uh, Elon Stribling. We have our, our co-hosts, Bethany and Caitlin. Uh, hello. How are you both doing today? Hi, this is Bethany, and I'm doing great. <laughs> I'm happy to be here. Same. Good. Same. I'm so happy to be talking with Sarah today. Good. Well, I'm, I'm happy everyone's uh, here today, and thank you for tuning in and listening. Uh, we're just going to have a conversation with the local and organic farmer. And her name is Sarah Longstreet. Everyone, put your hands together, make a lot of noise, and welcome Sarah to the podcast. Hello, Sarah. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, and uh, you're having a good day so far? Oh, yeah. I'm not working, so we're, we're great. Perfect. Just to kind of start to get kind of caught up, um, can you just tell us like your name, your farm, where you're from, and kind of just your background? And uh, Yeah. My name is Sarah Longstreet, and I own and operate Goodstead Farm in Hope, Michigan. We are a certified organic, uh, actually the Midland County's first certified organic vegetable and livestock farm. We're primarily a direct-to-consumer farm, so everything we produce goes directly to consumers as opposed to wholesaling or distributors. I'm actually from this area originally, born and raised in Midland, Michigan. Uh, moved away when I was 18, and I never thought I was coming back. But lo and behold, 12 years later, I came back to start the farm and we're now in our uh sixth season going into our seventh season of production nice and and sort of a, a quick follow-up like where did you learn the farm or like what did you study in school and did that kind of lead you to farming back home i was actually an anthropology sociology major and my minor was gender and women's studies my focus in college was actually uh, middle eastern social policy uh so not at all related <laughs> But in my spare time when I wasn't doing that, I was pretty focused on plants and growing. So actually, I did some extraneous programs in college where I was spending time on our biological research station, doing a lot with wild plants and wild plant identification and cataloging, and really loved that. And when I graduated college, I felt a huge disconnect um, in terms of I had a lot of ability to read and to write and to think, but I didn't have a lot of physical capabilities. I didn't have a lot of physical skills. So I left college feeling like, well, what, what do I do with myself? What do I have to offer, you know, going out into the world? And I didn't feel like I had much. So as soon as I graduated college, I actually moved out to the East Coast. I moved out to Maine and started looking for uh, apprenticeships on organic farms, actually, and started started there. Nice. So in college, it was sort of a, an extracurricular activity, like a hobby per se? Yeah, it was uh, something that felt important, but didn't feel important enough to make my, you know, my field of study. I didn't gotcha. really know how to incorporate it into what I was doing with my life. Right. This is this is Bethany chiming in, but I was, was that an option? Like when you were entering school and you're thinking about majors, um. People kind of have to know that that's what they want to go do and go pursue a degree at an, a school with an ag program, right? It's hardly one that you go in being like, I'm undeclared, and then partway through, you decide you're going to be a farmer. That's that's probably not the path, right? Well, I mean, and I did go to a liberal arts college, so an ag major wasn't really an opportunity. It was more like, 
you know, environmental science or, you know, it was some aspect of that, but it, it wasn't ag. Yeah. It was more sort of still in like the theoretical realm. And, uh, how, how did you and, uh, Bethany, you can also jump in on this. How did, how did Bethany and, and Sarah meet? What, what's the relationship? I'll, I'll take this one. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had a big crush on Sarah because the farmer's market is kind of the coolest thing in Midland. And then Sarah is the coolest kid at the farmer's market. But I just moved actually from the Bay Area of California where farmer's markets are great. I was really not expecting to find such a good one here. And then I saw Sarah probably from a distance and was like, oh, I'm going to go the other way. <laughs> She's like, I'm, I'm going to want to be her friend. And she looks way too legit and hippie for me. And I'm going to no. feel like shamed. And so I probably wasn't friends with you as soon as I should have been, but everything happens as it should. And I had a friend here who convinced me to sign up for your CSA with her that we would split it. And pretty quickly we came around your booth and had to meet you. And I think I'd already emailed with you explaining how I didn't want anything to go to waste. So I was splitting a, a half share CSA, but it's all for the best. And like, I'm sorry, we're going to be complicated, uh, but we <laughs> are excited and just like way overzealous. And now I know how little time you have for emails, but in this scheme of my whole move from the Bay area to Midland, I always talk about how maybe my favorite thing has been how local I've eaten and it's all thanks to Sarah. So I weaseled my way in and then got her on this podcast. And now it's like, everything is coming together. And now Would we're you... the best of friends. Yeah. Is that how you experienced it That's as well? Uh... Sarah? <laughs> More or less. No. And that's our yeah. I love you. It's cool that you like met her at a farmer's market and were like out meeting people and that she's nice enough to to share that space and open enough to talk to you, Bethany. We hugged. I think we had like an awkward meeting kind of. Which is forbidden now. Yeah, which is against <laughs> yeah. the law. So for the the listeners and for myself, I'm not going to even pretend I don't know what a CSA is. So, so Sarah or, or anyone, can you can you kind of explain uh, what is a CSA on a very simple level for someone like me? Uh, yes. Yeah, so CSA stands for Community Supported Agriculture, and it's not at all a new concept. It's actually a pretty old concept, and what was it? I think it was uh, originally created by Booker T. Washington. As a quick editor's note. Sarah means to say Booker T. Watley here. Fact check me, yeah. So it was originally created as a way to aggregate and find a home, to find a place for farmers, you know, produce. Markets can be unstable, especially, you know, if you're thinking about the larger markets like wholesale and such. And so it was a model to directly put the farmer in communication with the consumer. So a CSA is a, essentially like a vegetable subscription, a the consumer buys in or purchases their subscription in the off season. So here in like the winter. And the idea is, is when the farmer receives those funds in the off season, those funds help to support the next season's worth of farming. So um, all the seed purchasing, the labor purchasing tools, you know, supplies, packaging, it gets that next season up and running. It's sort of like the startup capital, if you will, for that next season. And then, you know, as soon as the season hits and there's food coming out, 
those uh, members, so CSA members, then get their subscription fulfilled. So within our summer CSA, the summer CSA members who buy in during the winter, they get 20 weeks of vegetables from May through October. Sweet. So it's like a it's like a Netflix sort of pre-order your food thing. Precisely. Yep. That's sweet. That's yeah. really cool. And are there like, are there different, because I heard Bethany saying she split it with some, are there like different tiers or like buy-in? So if you just want, you know, yeah. a few items or, or the whole refrigerator? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we have different share sizes depending on essentially family sizes or your dietary options or preferences. So we have for simplifying it, we have like a small, medium, and large. Gotcha. That's really cool. I haven't heard of that before. And honestly, I, I mean, I'm going to look to see if there's something like that c- close to me because I would love to be involved and learn more about it. So there's not like a website. <laughs> there's probably a website. There, There is. I think it's uh, it's called Local Harvest. That's okay. Local Harvest. But I think that's a great way to connect with farms locally. Cool. Thank you. But but I can I couldn't theoretically buy a subscription for you all the way to Michigan and I'm in Colorado, right? That wouldn't make sense. <laughs> no, we don't okay. ship. <laughs> okay. We're not right. shipping spinach to Colorado. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, no, no. I think I, I think I got all the I got all the dumb questions up. <laughs> okay. I'd like to add one of the unintended consequences of signing up for a CSA that makes you rethink food a little bit is that you don't create a list. The farm creates the list based on what's in season, what's being harvested, how much. Mm. So instead of thinking like, oh, this week I'm going to make X, Y, and Z. And so I'm going to go to the store and buy according to that. Instead, I started cooking differently because I was waiting to hear what would be in the CSA before I was thinking about what kind of meals and found that like the food I was getting was obviously super fresh, but super fresh, hyper local and only in season. I wasn't eating things that were out of season. I hardly went to the grocery store this summer for anything but like lemons, avocados, and wine. But, that sounds, I mean, that sounds romantic. But, that sounds like it's it'll kind of spice up. Midland is known as Little Italy in the rest of the world. <laughs> it's a little known fact. <laughs> it's a really interesting thing to think about food differently than just going to the grocery store with your list. Is thinking, well, what is right. the ground offering right now? Uh, another concept of it is that the consumers are supposed to be, you know, they're buying into the farm's successes, right? So all the things that do really well, all the, the things that are just abundant, but you're also sort of buying in and supporting the farm when there's losses as well, um, which is an important part of the CSA. So it is, it is, it is promoting and stabilizing local food, even if they don't have your favorite items available at all times. And when you're small, there's so much risk and people don't really think about that. Well, there's a lot of risk for farmers, no matter what the size. But in COVID times, people were freaking out, thinking about food security a few months ago. And we were realizing how much more secure your food is if it's local. So how are you affected by COVID in ways that differ, I guess, from the rest of us? Obviously, we just learned when setting up that Sarah has never had a Zoom call. So her life has not been affected by the Zoom wave the rest of us have experienced. But instead, you rode an entirely different wave, including local issues as well as just the same COVID changes as the rest of the country. Yeah. So a few things that come to mind is, first of all, at least in the state of Michigan, we were experiencing some points when there were total shutdowns of certain businesses. 
um, in the early spring, I had a lot of concerns about the other businesses that we rely on to get our season started. So for example, there's a, a composting company. So all of our potting soil and our amendments, the things that allow us to start seeding in the greenhouse and um, getting our fields ready for, for transplanting. I was concerned that they weren't going to be allowed to operate. So, you know, there were concerns like that, the businesses locally that supply us, but we were okay there because we're all ag, we're considered essential. So it didn't end up being a problem. There were some issues with, you know, uh, markets in general were really unstable in the beginning of the season. So farmers markets were unstable. You know, there were certain products that we weren't allowed to sell like nursery plants. So like seedlings, you know, vegetable seedlings when early, early spring, that's something that's a big seller of ours. And that was something that wasn't allowed to be sold. So there were some issues like that we had to sort of navigate and make sure that we were above board and we weren't, you know, our supplies were okay. The products that we were producing would be able to find a home. We could access our consumer base. You know, our markets were stable. You know, those were all the sort of issues that we were dealing with. So um, all of the season's work was already going. All the work was being put in. The, the crops were coming in. We just had to make sure that we could distribute them like normal. You said distribution. Yeah. yeah. Is the bottom line. Yeah. Because a lot of your produce is sold direct to the customer at the farm, but a lot of it at the farmer's market. So if there was no market. Exactly. So if, if there's no market or if the markets are operating way below capacity, yeah, absolutely. We're still, you know, we're producing the same amount as last year, if not more, and we can't access even half of the consumer base that we're used to accessing, you know, in the early season pre-CSA shares. So you were concerned. Yeah. So the lack of farmer's market actually was a huge issue. So typically at that time of the year, we are relying on farmer's markets before our CSA starts up. So this is April, early May-ish. We weren't seeing the same turnout at the farmer's markets um, because they, you know, where they were drive through, people weren't able to walk around and people were afraid to come out of their homes, et cetera, et cetera. So what we ended up doing is we actually... Um, created our own marketplace. We went online and created an online farm store. So we really brought the farm to the internet um, in a way that we hadn't before. We had a website, but really what we needed to do was create a whole new marketplace. So yeah, went online, sort of digitized and internetized all of our products and our inventory and started selling online and offering different methods of distribution to make people feel safe to, to get our product. Wow. And this, this huge adaptation to what you've been doing to help your business model personally has also helped so many people in the time of COVID. Do you think you're going to continue to provide these online services? Yeah. I mean, like it or not, COVID has totally changed our business model. Um, at this point, the vast majority of our sales are online, which is crazy. It's changed the work that we do. It's changed our labor base. It changes everything. Um, so yeah, the majority of our sales come through now online uh, via weekly order forms that go out. And so in um, addition to our CSA shares and our farmer's markets, we are now offering home delivery options. We're offering farm pickup options for orders that people place. And then we're doing a pre-order system as well. So yeah, I mean, it's changed my job entirely. And, and we're now you know, packing tons of orders every week, as opposed to say being out in the field working, it's just changed how we work around the farm. Being local and meeting people who are buying your products and your produce and things like that. Do you think like being online, especially during COVID has kind of helped broaden 
your reach to different people who may not have come straight to the farmer's market? Our customer base is primarily word of mouth. So we've grown as far as we have because of word of mouth. We don't do any marketing, which is how I like it. And it's worked really well for us. I would say it's just more customer engagement. I don't think in the beginning, at least, I don't think we necessarily had more customers, but I think customers were more engaged with us and were starting to prioritize where their funds were going and also where their attention was being placed, if that makes sense. Interesting. I'm learning so much. I feel like I should, I could write the paper <laughs> so far. <laughs> Not a good one, but. COVID probably happened around a time when you still had an opportunity to plant more food. And I think I texted you and I said, I've gone to the worst case scenario in my mind. And you were like, yeah, we'll have, there'll be plenty of food. We've got this. And you had, you had changed your plans to accommodate a much higher demand than you expected. COVID was the CSA boom. I mean, awakened people to where does your food come from? Absolutely. It's been crazy. You know, typically we plan for, we hope for, you know, between 10 to 20% gross profit increase from year to year. And that's what we're hoping for this year, maybe 20%. We saw like, I mean, the numbers are still coming in, but I would say at least 65%, which was way beyond what we were expecting. Uh, Yeah, it was intense. Uh, We've been sold out for most of the season. In the initial time period, in the early spring, we had what we had planned and it was like, okay, markets are down. You know, we're going to increase online sales. That's how we're going to reach our customers now because we don't have these markets, these farmers markets, but you know, it's a intermediate buffer, but everything else just exploded. And uh, yeah, and we just, we just produced as much as we absolutely could this year based on our labor budget. We were able to take on a couple extra part-time people to help us out, but uh, it just, it was, it was intense. Yeah. That's a word for it. (laughs) I, I feel like I've never worked as hard as I have this year. And when I started the farm by myself, even it feels crazy to say, but this was probably the craziest year we've had so far. Yeah. 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 When you told me it was your year seven, I was like, that did not work out. Instead it was like pandemic flood. Everyone has had a hard year, but you have had no shortage of other challenges and business challenges. And you are a mission driven business, not a profit driven business. Pivoting on such a short notice means it's, these are long days for you. And I'm new to Michigan. The days are long in the summer. It is the sun is out for a very long time and 15 hours perhaps of sunshine that you're out working. There's yeah. just not enough hours of dark to force you to sleep. <laughs> and true. so I've caught you many times in the summer. Like we should go swimming. You look at me like swimming, <laughs> forgot about swimming. And I'm like, I'm going to shut up now. Uh, I'll see you in the winter. Follow back up. Well, we can't swim, by the way. <laughs> no swimming happens then. To carve a hole in the ice. And- <laughs> <laughs> so kind of just going off what uh, Bethany said, you know, you you kind of jumped into farming and you've been, from an outsider's perspective who doesn't know much, it seems like you're doing well and, and you're enjoying it. Um, and, you know, there's farmers are kind of like an aging population it's it's not the common skill or or you know job description that a lot of people have so um and and there's not like new farmers that are being produced as much because of the 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 world in which we exist do you have any theories beyond like the obvious stuff of maybe why people aren't getting into farming like millennials and people younger than that or will there 
be a change in your eyes? Do you hope there would be a change? And, or do you just want the market to yourself so you can just keep crushing it? <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, you know, I think it totally depends on where you are in the country. When I started farming after college, I was out in Maine, and Maine has a really healthy population, a growing population of young farmers. Um, lots of people who are in their 20s, 30s, 40s who are entering farming as a profession. And that's why I was out there for as long as I was, because I had the opportunity to mentor and work with so many great, successful, small, diverse operations. I think the challenge is, though, is when you think of a farmer, you tend to think of a sort of Midwest or Plains farmer who is going to be primarily a white man in the ages between like 50 and 70, most likely growing commodity crops you know, uh, corn, soy, or raising hogs, uh, or cattle. It's, it's very large scale, single crops, monocultures. And so I think, I think the challenge is, is that when you think of farming, you think of that. And when you think of farmers, you think of that. However, I think, um, the challenge is to really, to start to change of change the notion of what farming is and who farmers are. Um, and if you do do that, you start to see, uh, a lot more diversity, at least on the coastlines. I think it's starting to change a lot more in the Midwest. But, you know, for example, where we are, um, I was the first organic farmer in the area, and I'm for sure one of the youngest. Um, most of the farmers at markets are much older than I am. And we are a small farm surrounded by hundreds and hundreds of acres of commodity crops being grown by white men that are between the ages of 50 and 70. So I think that is, that is the notion. I think, I think things are starting to change, but I, I think that it's a slow change. And I think there are a lot of barriers to entry for sure. First of all, being the amount of work um, that it takes to actually do this successfully. Um, I think there's a lot of romantic notions about what it means to farm. Um, and typically, once people get past those romantic notions, it's much more work than people want to do for not enough money, right? Uh, which is a barrier. And then, you know, the marketplaces, making sure you have a marketplace to sell all of your products, you know, so you can grow all the carrots in the world, but if you don't have a good marketplace to sell them to, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. You know, making sure that you're set up in a, in a place where, you know, you're not competing against a hundred other farmers who are growing the exact same product as you. It is kind of a complicated uh, topic when you're talking about what the emerging markets look like and new farmers, but it is happening. I just think it's happening in ways that maybe we're not totally in tune with. We read uh, millennials take up half the workforce, but only 8% of farmers. And do you think that something like COVID or the shift in thinking about our produce is really going to shift the workforce to really consider farming as a viable option for young people looking to create careers for themselves? I'm not sure that it will. Because I think first and foremost, there are like some of the barriers are still pretty consistent, like land barriers, capital barriers. Um, and if you don't have uh, you know, if you don't come in from a farming family, you know, you know, making sure that you get like the right training to sort of set you on the right foot. I can't think that COVID would all of a sudden jumpstart a generation of young people to start thinking about food production. I think if anything, it would maybe get them thinking about where they spend their dollars more than anything, where their priorities are and where they're sourcing their food from and stabilizing food within their own 
uh, households or direct communities. But I, I think it's a big leap, though, to start thinking about then going into producing food for yourself, except if you are maybe doing it on a small scale. So like having your own backyard garden or having your own you know, few laying hens, which was something that we saw a lot this season. Uh, a big issue for farmers, normal everyday consumers were buying up all the chicks in the country. There was a chick shortage because people were <laughs> freaking out and buying, yeah. they were buying all the chicks nationwide and they were buying all the seeds nationwide, which I have strong feelings about is very frustrating and hard because we're trying to grow food and we can't access seeds because all these people are buying up all the seeds. Right. But people were thinking about food production within their own immediate pots, their their neighbors, their families. And I do think that is a shift. I don't necessarily think it makes them go into production, but it makes them start to think about stabilizing their own family's food source, which is important. Absolutely. Without a doubt. Something that I was excited about when I first was learning about the farm is that you have had farm kind of camp days for kids. And I thought, that could change someone's whole trajectory, not only have the experience on the farm, but to have that experience with you and your staff who are giving a different visual. If I had seen that as a kid, it would have opened up a different pathway. Having time on a farm makes kids appreciate food more. I think adults should have days on farms every year to remind us that it is backbreaking work. It would help us to waste less. I love the idea of kids seeing that because it's good for you on many levels to get your hands in the dirt, but it makes you appreciate your farmer. I think what was fun about our kids camp, which was something that we offered last year, obviously not this year with COVID, but kids are really like the ones who bring new ideas and new thoughts and habits into families and households. I learned this actually working elsewhere is that, you know, if you want to change familial habits, a really great way to do that is introducing new ideas and concepts to kids and, and they'll take it into the home and, and they'll start kind of training their parents. So yeah, the idea is, is that, you know, the, the farm camp is never meant to be a uh, petting zoo. It's supposed to be science. It's supposed to be hands-on and it's supposed to give you a real sense of what we do. Um, but in a way that's digestible to children and that's fun and it makes them feel silly and inquisitive and curious and, and all those things that kids need to be. I think that worked really well. It was really fun and it engaged them and they cared. And it also gave them a different idea of what farming could look like. Yeah. I mean, there weren't combines involved and there weren't $100,000 tractors involved, but it, it was something that uh, involved their bodies and it involved things that they could touch and see and smell and eat and uh, made a difference to their communities and their homes. And, and they, they loved it and it was really fun. And it was definitely something that our families missed this year and, and we missed this year as well. Yeah. I don't even want kids. And then I saw that camp and I was like, maybe I should have kids <laughs> besides, besides Elon. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I, I really appreciate that because I never grew up on the farm. And I mean, I did what you just spoke up kind of in the end of saying like, let's go to a petting zoo or, or let's go ride a, a tractor around hay bales or, or whatever. But looking back and, and what I want to do and where I'm at in life, I wish I had um, not even hardcore skills like you have, but even just like a concept of really what it takes and, and the different types of farming. Because farming to me is just 
some old guy and he wakes up early and for some reason he has a limp and there's animals running about and he talks to them. So that's really cool that kids can come out and, and experience something that I think Bethany said we all should know and value. So kind of before um, COVID really hit us, before political unrest following the death of George Floyd and the resurgence of BLM, you not only scaled up to meet demand, but you expanded even further to develop a no questions asked sliding scale program to reach people who otherwise might not have exposure or means to access produce like yours. Local activism can look differently on all of us when we use these talents and resources that are kind of unique to our communities. But I just want to know how, how did you kind of decide to take up this helm. <laughs> I cried when I got the email and I'm like, she's doing something else. Granted, I know that you have annoying customers like me who are like, <laughs> hey, wouldn't a program like this be great? And you're like, yeah, we know, <laughs> but we need to breathe. We're drowning. You saw a need to get vegetables to people who don't even know to go looking for vegetables like yours. Yeah, I'm going to cry right now. I'm going to mute myself. Well, you know, I think... There's a lot of feeling about that time period because there was a lot happening in the country with George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement and Minneapolis where you've lived. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all that was very poignant and it was communities that I'd lived in and communities that I know and neighborhoods that I've been in and lived in and worked in and, you know, being here, being where we are, um, I... I had a hard time knowing what our role was in this conversation, you know, this national conversation that was happening around the quality of life for people of color and institutionalized racism, which is huge, huge topics. And I'm not an expert in things that feel very, very, very important. And within our community, a predominantly white community, you know, how do you have this conversation and how do you think about these things and how do you, how do you make a change and a difference? And yeah, they're really, really big topics and things that even now I struggle with. Our thought was, was to think about food security and stabilizing communities in terms of food access. And while we may not have a lot of people of color in our immediate community, um, the thought was, is that we have to sort of start here. We have to start on the our geographical footprint, you know, the place that we are, and kind of move from there. The other thought was that maybe hatred or displeasure for the other or a fear of the other is rooted in a sense of not having enough and a sensations of, like, competition, whether or not that's real or fabricated or politicized, whatever. But if people started to feel maybe more secure in some ways within their own communities. I don't know. It's a crazy idea, right? We created the the program and, and, and sort of with those all those big thoughts in mind, not knowing if it would reach what we wanted to reach. But yeah, that was where the community shares came from as a, as a way of offering good food to people who needed it, who wanted it, who didn't have to prove anything to us, um, didn't have to show us proof of income, um, just their desire or their requesting would be enough of uh, an insurance to their need. And so that's how we set up the program and, and how we continue to to run it. And I know you already had other things in the works that you're still working on, accepting EBT. And all that I took away was no matter where you're at, there's something you could do. And often right in your skill set is where you should start. 
sometimes my skill set feels removed and irrelevant to making a, a real difference. Whereas to me, food is very relevant to making a difference in anyone's life. And I'm a privileged person who can buy organic at the grocery store, but eating vegetables that are farmed by someone I know this locally and fresh and all of that, like that's enhanced my life. That's something I want other people to have. I want everyone to have. I get this. It's funny, even just saying like that idea of security and get, if you can like spread that vibe of there's enough, everybody, <laughs> you know, that is a powerful message in and of itself. Whatever your skill set is, start there. Wherever your community is, start there. And you are already busy. You have every excuse in the world. Your family has lost a home. You've had a lot going on. But seeing like you do that moved me to think of like, what's a more practical way to look at my life and see whoever is it, whoever's in need and wherever I can spread a really positive message of security and love. And when there's stress, we like hoard. And that's what people did during the pandemic. Everyone's buying toilet paper at a rate that's unreasonable without thinking about the next person in line, the person behind you. Why the fuck are people being ugly right now? I just loved, I loved that, that you did that this year of all the times, even though I know you were probably doing a more thoughtful version that was going to roll out next year that made a lot of more sense or, you know, had a bigger picture in mind, but the fact that you were able to pivot on the skills and the resources that you had and somehow create space and time to do it. A big part of it too, is there's this idea of organic is gourmet and expensive is gourmet and organic food. It's fancy because it's expensive, et cetera, et cetera. And there's, there's a lot of things that aren't really correct in all those statements, but especially with the, the community shares, I mean, we're really trying to get people to just be excited about good food, food that tastes good. And it happens to also be very nourishing. It's not about it being organic because I know sometimes that can be a turnoff and it's not gourmet. I mean, everybody should have access to just clean, healthy food that they think tastes good. And that shouldn't be gourmet. I mean, small producers being able to survive and have families and feed their staff and pay their staff well shouldn't be considered excessive. I think we should be able to have small food systems where we can pay farmers a decent wage and farmers can pay their staff decent wages and our community can get good food that tastes good and and, and nourishes them. And, and none of that should be too expensive or should be unaccessible. And I think that was our goal in all this with with the community shares was not to make people feel like they were getting this like special product. It was accessible to them and they could get it and we would deliver it to their homes and they had good fresh produce and it was safe and we hoped they loved it and it wouldn't cost them much, you know. Normalizing pesticide free food. If you put it like that. Yeah. And and for whatever reason, organic is kind of a political term in some groups. And I, I don't quite understand why. Um, and so we didn't want it to be political. We didn't want it to be economical. We didn't want it to be a, a social economic thing. We just wanted it to be accessible. For everybody. Yeah, yeah. I hope the listeners are clapping right now because, I mean, that's remarkable. And it's really, really cool. That's important for a lot of people. And maybe they, they haven't had the chance to say thank you, but, um, you know, we can Man, yeah. No, no, yeah, no worries. I'm about to get a little uh, choked up. I don't know why. Uh, <laughs> so uh, kind of going from that, like how can consumers 
uh, whether that be through a through a CSA directly with you or or kind of nationwide. Uh, how can consumers better support farmers in general? I think the best way of doing it is to directly communicate or to directly identify who are the producers in your area. Um, I think I think working with a producer directly is just about as good as it gets. Um, it's great for them, but it's also it, it's also really good for you. And I think it's really great for your immediate community, your economic community, your social community. You know, going online and and honestly just googling, you know, or going to your local harvest website and and just seeing who is producing what in your area, I think is really really valuable. And starting there, and 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 if you find a farm that you really like, then ask them if they know of any other farms in the area that they'd also recommend. Farmers supporting and recommending other farmers is really the best way to go, because of course the farmer that you love and trust can tell you of at least one or two other farms in the area that they would also recommend. I'm sure they buy their food from you know for their families too. So you know, find one farm that you like, and and then go from there. Perfect. Yeah. And that's something that I literally like when we're done this evening, I'm going to get off and just be like, <laughs> where can I get the <laughs> freshest, the, the the best food? Kaylin, you're nodding. You agree? Absolutely. Yeah. I've been waiting on Sarah's wait list for a minute. Yeah. Kaylin, it kind of sounds like you're trying to get the inside. She's like yeah, casually so. being like, and if you just want to move me like up on that list. <laughs> Um, that'd be great. Like, like I'm there, only, I'm like, totally I know I'm a couple cities away, but I'll drive and I will any, any day you just name the time. I'll come pick I will, up. honestly. Yeah. Schedule. If you need me to work on the farm, just let me know. <laughs> You're in. I know, I know there's so many places that we could go, but on top of everything else is a little bit of educating customers like myself who recently learned about rutabagas. Sarah has taught me a few things and I'm sure I'm not the least informed vegetable eater in your CSA. So thank you for educating us. I'm sure you have ample stories, but it's kind of just this one additional piece of your job that people don't think about is you have to teach people. Yeah, there's a a lot of food education that goes into what we do. And I'm not sure that I think moving back to the Midwest, I wasn't totally um, ready for how much of that would become my job and in my job description. But a lot of what I did, I guess, in the first, at least the first few years in setting up the farm was was really talking to people about what we grow, how to use it, how to cook it, how to store it. Yeah, how to how to familiarize people with these things that might look slightly different, um, but but is is just as delicious and, and cooks up very easily and stores very well. So, so yeah, I think that's a huge part of what I do is, is consumer education about, about food. And we mostly try to have items that people recognize and people are familiar with. But of course we have a few items that are a little bit more novel or things that you wouldn't see in a grocery store, but we're not, we're not, again, we're not trying to make it fancy. We're trying to provide as much food as we can during all seasons so as many options as we can during say like the weird parts of the early early spring in Michigan or the weird parts of the winter in Michigan. And so sometimes that means having some cold hardy items that are a little strange looking, but might grow really easily and are still a really great vegetable to have and cut and eat and enjoy, but it's just not what you're used to eating. So, you know, again, we try not to be uh, too over the top, but we do really hope to, 
sort of wet people's appetites for some different things, but hoping them, you know, helping them to make the most and get the most value out of the products they get from this. So like, for example, you know, getting say a, a bunch of Japanese salad turnips with the beautiful greens on top. Well, we leave the beautiful greens because they're some of the most nutritious part of the, the vegetable. And so um, they're easy to eat. And, and so when you're buying those, you might as well also utilize the greens. And so we just try to get people excited about those little weird things as well. And kind of going, kind of going, you know, in the world, they say there's no stupid questions, but I think every once in a while you, you're going to get one. What's like the, 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 we won't say stupid. What's like the wildest question you got or the most obvious, or maybe like you're the funniest question you've ever gotten. Cause I don't know what a rutabaga is to me. That sounds like an old car. Or, uh... I mean, it should be. It should be an old car. I mean, it, yeah. <laughs> I, I think, you know, one that we do get really regularly is, did you grow this yourself? And it's maybe not quite what you were looking for, but it is one of the most consistent questions that we get. Yeah. As people asking me if I actually grew these items. And I'm not sure where that comes from. If it's because I'm a woman at a farmer's market stand and mostly it's men. I'm not sure if it's because... They think it looks really beautiful and it seems like it shouldn't be at a, a, a farmer's market stand. It should look a little funkier or, right. or maybe it's the opposite. I don't know. I don't know. But that is, that is one question that uh, we get very, very regularly, at least once a week for the last six years is, did you actually grow this? But then the second question is, so what do you do with this? Yeah. <laughs> and that can go, that, that's across all the boards. It's like a tomato. It's a bag of lettuce. It doesn't matter what it is. So what do you do with this? You know, uh, that's, that's the second most popular question. You should have like, you should have like baby pictures of all the plants you grow and just be like, yeah, yeah I, I raised it from when it was a little popped. <laughs> to an adult. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. That's, that's that. probably one of the things that I would, I would honestly ask is, is, uh, like, what do I do with this now that you've given me this such a, such a yeah. good thing in it? I think that we maybe touched on this idea that we need to normalize pesticide-free food. I think one of the first steps is to think about your organic farmer instead of thinking about a big business profiting from you paying 20 cents more. If you have a concept of how much work it is to grow any produce, regardless of organic or not, it's work. It's a lot of investment. When it's organic, it's going to be a different ball game because you're competing against perhaps pests, which is part of it. That's also part of a healthy biodiverse ecosystem. And I know that's something that is a part of the way that you steward your farm is knowing that there's a lot of lives outside of your plant babies and your chickens and geese and ducks and sheep and dogs and cats <laughs> is that there's other animals that are native and that are that are going to come and go. And some of them feel like nuisances and they're extremely challenging, but they're not bad. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why I started farming in the first place is that I have a really great love and appreciation for ecosystems. I love seeing how they function and I love understanding that. And I love seeing it in action and at a farm is an ecosystem within many other ecosystems, right? And so understanding that your very manipulated agricultural system is operating within all these larger systems 
um, you know, there's, you have the soil, you have the wildlife, you have insects and bees and pollinators. Um, uh, you know, you just have all these other things happening that are not part of, of what you're immediately cultivating, but absolutely alter the, the product and the system that you're functioning within. Um, I think that's really exciting. And I think that's really important because a lot of times I think large scale monocultures want to create a sterile system, right? You till the shit out of everything and you spray everything. So everything is killed. Um, everything is dead. And then you just plant and you are planting your corn or you're planting your soy and you, you want just one thing, but we very much rely on a complex living system. And so while it, it may include uh, some things that we're not super excited about, like pests, maybe sometimes fungal activity that goes awry or bacterial activity that goes awry and creates some disease, um, for the most part, a healthy system has checks and balances. And if you have healthy living things, they create a, a, a check and a balance system for certain pathogens or pests that do eventually come into your system. Um, and that's what I think a healthy functioning organic system is about, is having many healthy ecosystems that create checks and balances, as opposed to a sterile environment that relies on, on chemicals and um, sort of death, if you will, I mean, not to be dramatic, but to, to try to promote a singular crop. Sarah, there's a question I've been holding on to for longer than today. I know this is something that's been on your mind and obviously mission-driven is one way I would describe your business and that it's not for the weak-hearted. It's not for the, I mean, you're physically and you're mentally strong to do it. It's not just for anyone, but there are people who I think really are cut out for it. And I want you to share maybe about what motivates you or anything along those lines that you'd, you'd want to share with someone who thinks they want to be a farmer. Yeah, that's a good question. And you're right. That is something I've been thinking about. And I think I can mostly articulate, it's a few different factors. Personally, one thing that motivates me is that I want to be my own boss. I love working for myself and I love setting my own systems. And that's really important because all farming is, is systems. It's a total, totally systems-based occupation. I love the ability to be able to fail and correct myself every season. And I can only do that, I feel like, because I'm the boss. Because I'm in charge of these systems that I set up. If I make a mistake or if I get something wrong, I mean, you're a scientist, right? Every year you have these hypotheses, you know, your sort of question that you're, you're, you're trying to glean for that season, whether it's getting a handle on this pest or, and so you're sort of setting yourself up every year to answer a new question. And I love that I have the space to do that. Being my own boss allows me to do that. I think that I was also a child that loved to be outside and found a lot of personal and spiritual and emotional solace in being outside and being near and amongst living things, plants and animals. And I thought for a long time that maybe I'd be a biologist or a zoologist, 
but I didn't really see how that would work out. Um, and it didn't really feel practical. And so I think farming was a way to tap into that. And I think finally, I have a very independent spirit. And so like sustenance, you know, providing for myself and having the know-how and feeling like I could take care of myself and my family or my community feels essential to me. And so I think, again, farming has allowed me to be able to develop those skills. So I think those three things are the constant source of, I don't know, inspiration maybe is the best word. And I think also, I feel like you're, you are really a mini scientist. Like when you're farming, you're always, you always have questions and you're always trying to improve upon these natural systems. And I love that. I love being able to make small changes and understanding how you fit into them, but how all these other species and microbes and bacteria and fungi fit into them as well. That to me is, is very riveting and it feels very important and it feels like a very essential task and occupation. Word of the year right there. You have never shared like all of that with me in our conversations about farming, but the idea that you could feed your actual family, you could feed your people. And in times like this year where you think we can't eat money, it means so little what you have in the bank. The bank could be gone. That's like a mindset that we've kind of evolved away from because we don't have many people left from that generation. You're an essential friend to have. Those people I texted when I thought shit was going to hit the fan. I, I've always thought, you know, when I was a kid, even, um, I thought a lot about occupations or jobs to me that felt essential, right? So like, no matter what happens, no matter what the social climate is, no matter what your socioeconomic status is, like, what are the jobs that we always need? What are the things that like you can never dispute? And I was like 16. And I remember thinking this, like, what are those indisputable positions, like occupations? I remember thinking like, we need people to produce food. We need people to teach. We need healthcare. We need people to take care of us. Yeah. Think, did you, you, know? did you start COVID? Did she create COVID? She's been like thinking about this for a while. Like, I think uh, it's all adding up now. It actually makes no. so much sense. Oh, wait, Elin, you had like a three-part question. Did you get out how many parts of the question? Two parts? I think I got out two. And then I was going to ask, um, you know, would there ever be a cookbook, like a great cookbook of, of stuff that you can get, you know, from you? I don't have anything like that in the works. I will say that we have an email that goes out every week before the CSA's share goes out. And I let people know what's going to be in their share for the week. And then I give out some basic recipes for items that I think maybe people will be like, oh, what do I do with this? Or we've had a lot of this this past few weeks. You know, I need something new. And my focus is always recipes that you can make simply and quickly when you're busy and you have a family. I don't have right. a family, but I'm busy and I don't have a lot of shit in my pantry. And I don't want to spend $100 for one recipe. Right. So I always think like, what do you have on hand? Like the whole point of this is to give you some really great ingredients so that you can just eat the food and not need all this shit to like make it special. You know, the food right. is good enough. Right. So I think it would take us some real brain power <laughs> on my part to put together a book that really encapsulated that. But I think that would be the point though, is that like, 
the point is the vegetables. And the point is just to have what you have on hand and to make some really good food and you're busy and you want to eat well. And this is how you do it. But, you know, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see who I can get to work with me because that would be fun. I will. Carrot top pesto is a recipe you shared once. My mind was blown. Like, of course. I'm just well, going to take the carrot tops and make a pesto, <laughs> put it on top of the carrots. It was delicious. Hey. And I, I've been wasting carrot tops for much of my life, I have to say. <laughs> I think successful integration of new ingredients and new vegetables to your diet is so essential to people kind of opening their minds to this biodiverse, beautiful bounty that, you know, nature has to offer us. Yeah, I think so. And I think, I think even more so now that farms are competing with uh, companies like HelloFresh and Blue Apron and all that, I think people do really want to have convenience and they want things to be simple and they want things to be um, accessible to them and their families or their little you know, their couple or whatever it is. And so, so yeah, I think uh, continuing to stay relevant in that way is really important for small producers to, to meet those, those demands. Sarah, thank you so much. I can't believe that I haven't cried. It feels like <laughs> a huge accomplishment, but I'm really thankful. And thanks for coming on and talking with us. Thank you guys for having me. This was really fun. Yeah, of course. And uh, um, is there anything you want to, you would like to, you know, not so much plug, but anything you want to support you or, or local organic anything? Because I know we know your Instagram is uh, Good Stead Farm on Instagram. Yeah, I'm so I can tell you like books and podcasts. Uh, <laughs> okay. Bethany. Go ahead, Bethany. You shared a little bit with me when you went to Washington, D.C. and you spoke with some of our representatives. You enlightened me a little bit about how people can make sure that our country is thinking about you. Yeah, that's, thank you. One organization to keep an eye out for that we support and that I have done some lobbying with is the National Young Farmers Coalition. Um, they're a national organization that advocates for uh, young farmers, uh, but also, uh, you know, uh, farmers of color, um, indigenous farmers, and really trying to make space for and advocate for the agricultural community within Washington. And they're doing really, really great work. I'm very excited about them. And I guess the only other thing would be to, you know, all states have their own sort of, you know, whether it's organic farming alliances or organic farming associations to kind of look out for those. Um, and those are great resources in terms of the small organic producing farms in your community and your state. And that gives you a really good sense of that, that network that you have available to you. So keep an eye out for those, you know, you can Google those in your state and that is a really great reference point for the, the, the farms in your in your area. Perfect. Yeah, and the, the National Young Farmers Coalition, everyone, that, that the website is www.youngfarmers.org uh, if you want to check that. <laughs> thank you. No, thank you. Hey, Caitlin here. One more time to say thanks for listening. If you take anything away from this episode, remember that eating locally and seasonally supports small farmers and promotes more sustainable food systems. We also have some great resources in our show notes regarding Booker T. Watley, the origin of the CSA, and the Young Farmers Coalition. 
If you're interested in finding your own CSA, be sure to look on localharvest.org. And if you're enjoying Greenash, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, hug a farmer next time you see one. They deserve it. And say thanks from all of us. See you next time.